You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 R in Melbourne, Australia. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. You probably just heard my voice a moment ago on Radio Therapy. That show went a few seconds over. I'm a bit <laughs> upset by that. Yeah, indeed. Uh, look, it's an hour of science, folks. You're on 3 R. I've got my team with me here, Dr. Diani. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Good to see you. Oh, it's great to be back. It's been a while. And you managed to get past. You were stuck by some marathon this morning. I know. Some those marathon. people who want to, you know, stay. Give to charities. And, oh, exactly, exactly. It's just such an imposition for some of us. <laughs> Dr. Cromo, how are you? I'm good, and I'm all the better seeing you uh, literally um, beam from one studio into another. So any anybody that says that that kind of technology doesn't exist, it does. We've seen it here this yeah. morning. Yeah, I'm a little better than bruised this week, and I, I will admit I actually uh, rounded the corner from Studio 2 a little fast, but thankfully our physiotherapist is in the <laughs> studio, Dr. Catherine. Good morning, Dr. Shane. What are we going to do during the break? <laughs> Yes, we'll uh, see Lower what we back. can organise. <laughs> anyway, we better get into some solid science here, folks. Uh, I think Dr. Diani will start with you, seeing you haven't been in here lately. You've been off doing stuff. I have been. And um, and to be honest, the first thing I'm going to do is apologise. I do owe one of our listeners, Mike B, some space news, but I'm not going to do space oh, yeah. news today yeah. because there's lots of other space news coming up. So, um, so I'll have to leave that for next week. But... Uh, this uh, this week I found an article uh, in the journal Science. Now, if, if you lose your hand, say, to in a car accident or something like that, one thing that you probably would do is you'd get a, prosth- a, a prosthesis of some sort. Um, but one of the problems with current prostheses is that they don't have any tactile feedback or, you know... Vi- you know, there there are some that have been made with, you know, rudimentary tactile feedback. But mm. a team at Stanford University has now developed um, an artificial skin that mimics real skin. Uh, so it's flexible, it can bend and stretch just like normal skin. And importantly, it sends information about the pressure that is being detected proportional to the amount of pressure that's being detected, which is exactly what normal skin does. So the the greater the pressure, then the greater the signal. It's made of a couple of different layers. So it's got an elastomer layer, which is impregnated with carbon nanotubes. And the pressure on the that elastomer layer, like the greater the pressure, um, the, the less the distance between the nanotubes and the electrode, which is underneath mm. it. Mm. Uh, so then that increases the oscillation frequency um, and and you get a greater signal. So it's a, it's a pretty nifty device and, um, and yeah, so hopefully this will lead to, you know, prosthetic hands mm. where you can actually tell the difference between, you know, grabbing a brick or grabbing a squishy banana. Well, and I, I know one of the tests they used to do is um, with cotton balls. You know, can yep. you can you tell that you're holding a cotton ball? Which is actually, if, if you actually think about that, folks, and, and think about holding a cotton ball and what you feel... I mean, the I'm not going to squash it, but I'm going to know I'm holding it Mm. is a really fine line of force. Mm. And so someone using any sort of prosthesis is actually, you know, the test of it is can you do that? Can you know that you're holding it, but not squash Mm. it? That's right. And and this is also thought, uh, you know, the better that these sort of sensory uh, feedback mechanisms get, uh, the more people will be able to overcome things like phantom limb Mm. because they'll be able to, you know, see their artificial hand and see what they're manipulating and get that feedback rather than relying on, you know, the neural um, firings from the phantom 
from mm. the phantom limb. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's it's uh, it's quite exciting. And the the other important thing I should say is that it's extraordinarily low power, so it doesn't require any additional computing components in the hand, and that's been you know one of the major barriers to you know making mm. these devices very simple. Um, yeah. yeah, very cool stuff, Dr. Kramer. Well. First of all, uh, after watching Ex Machina on, on Friday, I was reading about artificial intelligence and how far are we with artificial intelligence? Is it in inevitable? One basic fact, robots, uh, um, robots are better than humans at very precision tasks like spot welding, but when you ask a robot to clear a dinner table, that's one of the most difficult things you can ask it to do. In fact, it's just about impossible Presumably because they they don't always have that tactile, yeah. and they don't they you know they they they're very clumsy, which is so it it shows we've got a long way to go. But this technology could also help artificial intelligence. Mm. Imagine a, a robot coming to look after a baby or a fragile old person. Yeah, these these tactile sensations are very important. important. Mm. You got some news? Yes, I've got some news, um, and it comes from a galaxy far far away. It's nothing to do with uh, well, actually, it's not nothing to do with Star Wars. Nothing in life is ever nothing to do with Star Wars, which is <laughs> the dictum for today. Oh, we should remind people too that it's Back to the Future Day this coming week. Oh, is it? Is it Friday? I think it's, I think it's Wednesday. Okay. So if, if I've lost everyone, back in a in <laughs> film years ago called Back to the Future, <laughs> Doc Brown headed, headed forward into the future and came to this day this week. Oh, wow. really? Yep. In a DeLorean. And, uh, in the DeLorean. So <laughs> cool stuff. <laughs> and all I can say to everyone out there is, where the hell is my hoverboard? Well, they exist now. They're, they're yeah, definitely they a thing, They don't apparently. look as cool, do they? No, anyway, news. Looking cool comes comes uh, uh, after being clever. <laughs> I should know. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, the, the headline um, uh, was, a team of astronomers has stumbled across what it believes could be a swarm of alien megastructures hidden millions of miles away. This File this, um, file this under uh, Make Up Your Own Mind. Um, it's an unusual star situated above the Milky Way. I guess that implies that because the Milky Way is flat, it's somewhere above us. Between Cygnus and the Lyra constellations, to any of those who do know where those are. Um, and apparently a group of citizen scientists from the Planet Hunters program, I didn't know that existed. I, I, I'm not sure if it's officially part of SETI, the search for extracellular, extracellular intelligence. That's, <laughs> that's more closer <laughs> to my thing, isn't it? Extraterrestrial. Um, and basically they've they found um, astronomers have found this kind of bizarre light pattern. It's like a pulsating uh, pattern. Uh, it's a flickering pattern around this particular star, um, and they've 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 tr they've guessed about what it could be. They've put a number of theories and hypotheses behind this, but whatever they do, they nothing checks out. And they've you know it could be, for example, a um, a star with a kind of debris around it or, or uh, that's kind of causing the light to flicker or it could be another star or planet or, or comet has invaded this solar system and bringing with it a load of debris. So there's a number of explanations, I think most of which they can rule out, but there's obviously a lot which they obviously can't rule out. But um, uh, where somebody has actually suggested that um, in another civilization where um, they live on, where people live on a plate like Earth and our energy runs out, the sun gets smaller. 
you would build um, um, mega structures around your sun to harvest the energy and actually live in those mega structures. So it's very science fiction. And in fact, it was um, theoretically, these were originally called Dyson spheres, nothing to do with being vacuumed up, uh, but to do with um, a 1960 research paper. Well, so, it, yeah, and it, it, it's, it's kind of, I don't know, plausible, but I mean, it's such a huge, mm. it obviously have to be very more technically advanced. Mm. And my, it's, my money's on an oort cloud. Yeah, so it, yeah. yeah. What's an oort cloud? Comets. Oh, comets. So comets, it's just, rocks, debris. Okay, from, a cloud of crap yeah, going, cloud around, of crap. going around <laughs> this, this sun. So, yes, yeah, fine, we'd all like to think there was some other megastructure out there and, and probability does um, does exist that there are other uh, people that probably more advanced than, than us um, yeah. out there. It'd be but cool. It could be an, uh, a pile of crap. It could be a pile of crap. <laughs> Dr. Catherine, what do you got for us? Well, I'd like you to consider the potential of being able to improve our ability to multitask and imagine how uh, much more effective and efficient we would be if our brains could multitask really effectively. Can yeah. you say that again? Because absolutely... I was just reading what I was going to say. <laughs> You're a mountain. We can't do that. <laughs> no, I'm, abs I'm absolutely there because I think it's... Um, I personally think it's BS that women can multitask better. I've never been a good multitasker. <laughs> well, hang, hang on. Following the logic of science, that may just mean you're not a multitasker. I thought you were going to say you're not so, a woman. I'm not what, a woman, yeah. Dr. Cromer, you've advanced my theory even further. <laughs> She's an AI. <laughs> she has produced a child. Okay. I have seen the child. <laughs> the child is real. Okay. So, and it vaguely looks like it. And yeah. I still can't multitask. So, <laughs> <laughs> listen, well. listen. Having a child and doing anything in my mind is multitasking. <laughs> so, so, absolutely. So she's not we a bad, bad look. Couldn't do that. Catherine, how, how can we improve Sorry. Dr. Diani? Well, well, we'll try very hard. So one of the issues is it's, it's really um, hard to understand why our brain has such good cognitive capacity, yet we do actually have trouble doing two simple tasks at once. And there's a lot of research trying to understand what, what, what that issue is and also looking at how we can improve or train our brain's ability to do multitasks. Hmm. So the some researchers from the University of Queensland published some work this week in the Proceedings of the National National Academy of Sciences. And what they did is they did a study looking at 100 adults and divided them into two groups. And 50 of those adults went through a training program to try and improve their ability to multitask. And what they were looking at was their ability to do a task which involved pressing a button with one hand when they heard one of two sounds, as well as pressing a button with, a, with the other hand when they saw a particular shape. So it's using that visual and audible uh, processing. So both groups went through a training program for five days, practicing mm -hmm. the, the intervention group practiced this task over and over thousands of times. The control group did some other training but wasn't including multitask training. And, and the results were amazing. So that just after five days of training, the, inter, the interventional group did improve their ability, their speed, their accuracy of doing this task. But the fascinating part of this research is they used functional MRI, so brain imaging, to look at actually where the brain activity is occurring in the brain during performing these tasks. Hmm. And it was only in the people that had been through this specific training that their brain had changed the way it could process during the multitasks. And the researchers sort of described this as conquering and divi dividing and conquering. So what they found for the first time was that the brain actually divided the tasks into 
to and and then really conquered the task and that was not understood before. Wow. So mm. it, we're actually performing the tasks as if they're individual tasks um, and that's the way that people who are good at doing multitasks, their brains work. I can imagine a whole of the apps coming out to... Well, you know, there's so much, um, th- there are, is so much cognitive training. There are so many co- cognitive training apps around now. Mm. Um, but the, I guess the, the real challenge for researchers is to be able to have a, a, um, a training mechanism that does train them. And then at the end of the time, they're not just better at that task that they've been trained on, but, but they're better well. at other tasks. Mm. So are those people mm. generally better at multitasking or are they just better at doing what they've been training for five days to mm. do? Mm. And, and that's, you know, that sort of is the holy grail, I guess, of uh, cognitive training. Absolutely. And we see that certainly in exercise training. You can train, for example, on a bike and you get better at bike riding, but that doesn't necessarily mean yep. you're a better swimmer. So it's mm. exactly the same for cognitive mm. training. Yeah. I'm just going to keep doing what I do and, you know, it's a bit linear. <laughs> but it'll do. Brain plasticity, though, it's, it's oh, yeah. amazing. Yeah. Actually, my brain took a bit of a kick last night in the positive direction. I ticked off one of the items on my bucket list. I saw William Shatner on stage. Oh, wow. <laughs> Shatner's world. I have to say, folks, uh, top marks from me. He was very funny and very informative, and it was a fantastic show. So I don't know if there's any shows left or there was more than one show. Um, but boy, it was enjoyable. Both my wife and I cacked ourselves for almost two hours. And the guy didn't take a break. He's in his 80s, and he didn't take a break. Break. Ama- amazing. Wow. Did yeah. he sing? Uh, there was a little bit of singing. Oh, good. Yeah, <laughs> I got a bit cheery. Uh, but uh, even more exciting than that, actually, and we're going to be speaking to the producer of this particular upcoming show um, next week on the show, is the fact that Buzz Aldrin, do I need to say who Who's he that? was? Oh, <laughs> oh, geez, if I had a stapler, it would be hitting your head right now. Um, for those of you that know, Buzz Aldrin was the second human being to step out of the limb onto the moon after Neil. And um, anyway, there's an evening with Buzz Aldrin coming up. It's going to be hosted by Ray Martin. There's, there's actually two evenings. One's in Sydney and one's in Melbourne. Um, now, Buzz Aldrin, of course, a bit of a living legend in space exploration, but his new uh, focus is on Mars. And we want to take this, basically, he's going to take you on a journey um, through space history into the future and the future beyond planet Earth. He'll be reliving his incredible missions um, from being a fighter pilot in Korea, um, many people don't know that, actually, um, to his pioneering flight in Gemini 12. And if you're wondering, yes, that is how you pronounce it, Gemini 12, it's not Gemini 12. Uh, yeah, we can ask Amy, she's coming on in a few minutes, um, where he made the world's first successful record-setting complex spacewalk, or an EVA, um, man's historic Apollo 11 moon landing, of course, with Neil Armstrong um, not that long after that. Now, um, his, so essentially his new mission is to land uh, humans on Mars by 2035. I think I'll still be alive then, yeah. <laughs> Not a moment too soon. And um, he has this revolutionary plan to do it. It's it's actually really exciting. I'm going to talk about it more next week. Um, and, yeah, Ray Martin will be doing uh, the show. There's going to be some stunning images and a lot of footage from his own personal library of material that people won't have seen before. Um, so it's a great opportunity to actually see him. The tickets are, as I understand it, selling pretty fast. So you've got to get in quick. Um, you can find them on Ticketmaster. So just uh, go to ticketmaster.com.au and search for Buzz Aldrin and uh, you'll find them. You'll find me 
in row I. Because <laughs> <laughs> I got my tickets the second they came out. Um, Fanboy. And <laughs> well, you know, Man Crush with William Shatner. Yeah. You know, Sci-Fi Park. Now, Man Crush with Buzz. I, I'm going to be there next week for that as well. I mean, this, this is really exciting stuff. And not to put too fine a point on it, but neither of these gentlemen are, are that young and they don't come to Australia very often. And this will probably be the only chance to actually see them, and um, I can't imagine them coming back in the next few years. So, you know, it, it is a big deal. So if, you, if you're interested, folks, and you want to come along, I think it'd be really worthwhile. We're going to have something really special on the show next week with regards to this. So um, make sure you tune in, which doesn't mean you should change stations now, <laughs> um, but hang in there. And um, uh, Buzz, Buzz Aldrin was the inspiration behind Buzz Lightyear. Indeed. And you know where he got the name Buzz? His, with a nickname? Yeah, his sister, his sister couldn't say the word brother. She <laughs> called him Buzzer, which later got shortened to Buzz. Oh, and sweet. he actually changed his name legally to Buzz, I think, in the 80s or something. Wow. Um, so it's actually legally his name now. So very cool. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. And we're back. Sorry about talking over that track, folks. We just have a slight malfunction here in the studio. Don't know what's going on today. Everything seems to be falling apart here at Triple R. Uh, we're having fun. We're a community station, if you haven't noticed that. And uh, I'm a volunteer. And uh, even though I got a thousand percent increase in my salary this year, it's um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now we do have on the line Amy Shearer Title, who is our latest member of the Einstein Go Go crew. Amy, can you hear us? I can. Can you hear me? We can hear you loud and clear. Now, oh, uh, fantastic! Fantastic. Now, just to remind people, uh, you're a, you're a journalist. You're a space nut. You're a vintage space nut. You are the host or uh, host of the previous and, and again upcoming, hopefully, Pluto in a minute series on mm-hmm. YouTube from NASA. And you have your own YouTube channel called Vintage Space, which you've been doing for quite a while. Have I missed anything? Yes. Uh, I have a book coming out. Oh, yes. <laughs> that's, the, that's the big one, yeah. Yeah, we're going to talk um, about that book. Just hold that in the can for a moment if you wouldn't mind. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, um, yeah, it's in there. You're right. You're okay? Yes. Yeah, good. All right. Uh, folks, you may remember the last time we spoke to Amy, she was filming a documentary somewhere in the, the outback of Canada and um, had to go urgently because she was launching a rocket. Amy, how did that go? Oh, it didn't. <laughs> that was the worst. I felt it was, I don't know, it was such a like excellent dramatic exit, but we didn't end up going. So we we ended up, it was for a, a TV show, the name of which I don't actually know. Um, we, we were talking about Goddard's rockets and we spent eight hours in the New Mexico desert. It was about 108 degrees Fahrenheit, which I don't know what it is Celsius off the top of my head. Um, and waiting for winds to die down, waiting for rain to pass through or maybe start, maybe stop, not know. And then um, everything was fine. And then we had an electrical issue at the end, right oh. at the end of the day. And we're just, it was to the point where, you know, you're, you're sort of there, you're, you're all amped up to go. And then sort of the sun starts going down and gradually everyone just starts sitting on the floor. I'm like, well, we don't have any light to shoot this thing anyway, so no go. there goes the show. <laughs> mm. How big was the rocket? Uh, I think it was about an eight-foot-tall rocket. Okay, so not insignificant. We're talking no, to, yeah. no, it was going to be pretty neat. It was a replica of Goddard's A5 rocket, which is all the detail of it that I can remember off the top of my head. Hmm. Very cool. Now, let's talk a little yeah. bit about Pluto because, uh, of course, you, you put out all the Pluto in a Minute videos, which were content-rich yes. and, uh, requ- I guess, in a minute. they Did they choose you because you speak fast normally? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, 
<laughs> I sort of chose me. Oh, you chose <laughs> so you. So I think, yeah, this is what, this is sort of like the backstory of this project that no one really knows about. So um, Alan Stern, the PI of the mission, realized that scientists can't necessarily write um, when it comes to kind of creating press releases and coherent material for the media. So instead of trying to teach his, you know, 160 plus science team how to write, he decided to instead hire a bunch of writers who know how to science. Mm-hmm. And he ended up bringing in eight or six uh, embedded journalists, one per per theme team, one leader of the team. And then I was kind of the awkward floater. And I was like, I don't really have anything to do. And I, sh- I can contribute more than just like being another voice writing a press release. Um, so I have this camera and this ability to turn around a video pretty quickly. Why don't I try doing some videos for the mission? And, you know, I had to, you know, go through all the hoops of NASA and uh, the Applied Physics Lab and everyone else who was uh, SWERI, the Scientific Research Institute, um, and eventually kind of sold it to all those people, and we just, we tried it. And I just decided one day, I was like, if we're going to do it, I want to do one video a day for the entire month, hmm. with the exception of the anomaly in the end. Um, and that's, that's kind of how that happened. Hmm. Oh, that's a great story. Yeah. Yeah. Was, was it was it hard work? I mean, I mean, I can imagine that um, one minute for those who are viewing it, think, oh yeah, yeah, she just whopped out a minute. You know, what what did she do for the other twenty three hours and fifty nine minutes <laughs> in the day? But but that I mean, there must have been a fair bit of work that went into those because the content in them was quite extraordinary. Yeah, well, it worked. Um, I mean, when you're kind of living it like that, it it wasn't too bad because, I mean, I was also in all of the, the meetings with the science team leaders um, or anyone relevant to come up with the day's press releases and also the main, like the, the plenary sessions with the whole science team. So, you know, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m., we were in meetings going through press materials and talking about the big discoveries and the things we wanted to release the next day. So I was sitting there with the scientists thinking, you know, I just kind of put my hand up and be like, well, that's the video that I want to do today, so I'm going to come chat with, you know, you, Mr. X, um, and get kind of the details, make sure that you sign off on exactly the you know two points or three points that I'm making. And then I would work with that one one science team leader or sometimes just directly with Alan, uh, depending on what the what the episode is about. Um, just sort of they'd clear the points. I'd shoot it, I'd cut a really rough, rough version. They'd okay it. And sometimes, you know, I'd, I'd inadvertently say something that would be mildly misleading for a scientist, but the average person wouldn't know about it. But I still had to make, you know, clear with the scientist. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'd go back, make the changes I had to, and then give it to NASA PR at the end of the day. So it was about a four-hour turnaround, probably, per okay. episode. Yeah, for a minute. Yeah, for, one, <laughs> for one minute, yeah. I mean, I also... It, we take into account, like, I felt like they gave me a studio, you know, they gave me an office, a disused office, put a banner up, and I had to, you know, schlep my gear in every day, set it up, you know, do all the, I'm my own lighting director, everything, so. Yeah, that's kind of Some days I would shoot, and it would be out of focus, and I I was not on very sophisticated editing software on my laptop, so it was just like, well, here we go again. Well, they they, they turned it pretty well. Now, there's there's a lot of really cool stuff still coming in with um, regards to New Horizons. Is is there anything sort of really caught your eye in the last few weeks that you think is just astounding? Ah, to be totally honest, I've been so out of the loop with it because I'm not going to the meetings anymore and I've got been like so sidetracked by the book, which I am still holding off talking about. Um, (laughs) The thing that I think is actually the most interesting and I have to, I just don't know if we haven't gotten the data yet or if I've just haven't been paying attention to like the the less kind of superficial uh, releases that are all about images. I'm, I'm really fascinated as to what this giant ridge canyon thing that covers all of Sharon's Mm. Pluto-facing side. I mean, what is this? How is a moon 
this varied and this interesting. And I'm very interested too in the red spot on its pole, on its northern pole, that there's some, you know, we've seen the Pluto is red because because of these these stolons that, that um, generate when the uh, the UV light breaks on the methane in the atmosphere and it sort of falls down. So could it actually be that Pluto's atmosphere is distended or uh, it's the wrong word? What's the word I'm supposed to be using? Connected uh, to Charon in some way. <laughs> yeah, wide yeah. enough that it's actually depositing a little mm. bit of material somehow on Charon. I mean, that's that the relationship between these two bodies I think is so interesting and so unique, and that's. The, the images are great and beautiful, but really I'm so curious to understand the, the interaction between these two bodies over time. Yeah. Now, let's talk about your recent exploits because you've been essentially stalking Matt Damon around the country. Um, well, I've been trying to. <laughs> <laughs> with the release of, of The Martian, um, you, you've been following that. No, I mean, following uh, some of the stuff you've put on Facebook and so forth, you've been to some extraordinary sites across the US with yeah. regards to, you know, launch history and so forth. Tell, tell us a bit about what you've been up to. So this one did actually come with NASA picking me because I can talk fast. Um, <laughs> based on Pluto in a minute, they, they realized, and I, I've, you know, I know some people at HQ at this point, they sort of said, you know, what, what you do is, is something unique and we can sort of, we want to use that. And I said, I want to do that please. Um, so we kind of came up with this idea of doing, you know, at the risk of becoming the in a minute girl, um, these kind of shorts called the real Martians. And it kind of, it was interesting because, you know, I conceived and, you know, created Pluto in a minute myself. And then I had this kind of workshop, this idea for the Martian thing. And it turned out to be very different um, without me knowing it at all. But what it, what it amounted to was basically sort of NASA using the success and the sort of publicity surrounding the Martian to say, well, we're doing the real technology behind the things like the the water reclaimer and the oxygenator and all the technologies that are in the book slash movie. So let's talk about the real people who are developing the science to try to leverage that PR. So what I was doing was going around to various NASA sites um, and either showcasing some of the cool stuff that people are working on, uh, which is pretty fun, or um, following cast members around and kind of doing you know PR videos about. Um, they're them visiting visiting the centers and kind of learning from the real Martians about what the real technology is that they dealt with in the movie, which was interesting in a different way. But you know, for for me, it was it was interesting to sort of watch the interaction between those two things. Yeah, it was I, neat. It was weird. I mean, were there many instances where you had to go, like, where you really wanted to do a segment that was like, okay, the movie says this, but in reality, that's completely not the case. Or did you have to sort of, you know, grab onto the bits that were really scientifically valid and you know like how how accurate was the movie (laughs) um yeah so i mean the one thing i will say like you know not had had i been doing it for my own brand like under vintage space i would have done it differently because i i do think that the real interesting stuff is like okay here's what happens in the movie where is the real science does that exist if not where are we with it if so then what is it um the movie is fairly accurate um and i think what's a lot a lot of the things apparently um you know, Matt, Andy Weir, uh, I was going to say Matt Damon, but he didn't write it. Um, Andy Weir did workshop it, sort of writing it as a blog and then had people kind of involved in, in, you know, sharing what they were working on and what their understanding of sort of how to farm potatoes and stuff. And I met a, um, a botanist who was actually growing potatoes and I was just kind of sat down and I said, like, is it really possible to grow potatoes in Martian soil in human feces? And he said, yes. <laughs> so there are elements like that is real. There is an experiment on... Um, 
the 2020 rover, uh, NASA's 2020 rover called MOXIE. I can't remember what the acronym stands for, but it is going to be uh, getting oxygen out of the Martian atmosphere as a sort of proof of concept of this, this technology that Matt Damon's character uses in the book slash movie. So there, there's a fair bit of realism. And unfortunately, I mean, the, the I don't want to like spoil it for anybody out there who hasn't read it, but... Um, there is some, we'll, we'll, we'll say it this way, there are some atmospheric elements to the story that are unfortunately the improbable catalyst events for the, mm. the whole thing. Mm. Uh, one, one way we could say that, Amy, is that uh, Mars has one-eighth of the atmospheric pressure of Earth, and a key feature in the yes. book and movie is a, a storm that's very windy. So, yes. So, Put yeah, those, put, if you had those kinds of winds, you wouldn't necessarily feel it yeah. because the atmosphere is so thin. Yeah, so so, so anyway, but but it is, it's one of the, I have to say, unfortunately, because um, you were putting all this stuff out about the book, I had to bloody read the book. You guilted me into it. <laughs> and and the book so is... It's a fun quick it's read, It's a though. really good book, actually. I, I, I really enjoyed it because I think, it's, it's interesting when I think back of my own career getting into science, and what led me to that? It was it was literally you know um, authors like Jules Verne and H. G. Wells, which you know well you know the time machine was close to fact, but I think we can we can get yeah. a lot of inspiration in people, and we don't have to be perfect. And this film goes pretty far along the you know the line towards being perfect compared to many other movies of its type. So from that perspective, yeah, I think absolutely. you know bravo for them doing as much as they could, and I think people can still be inspired into the idea of going to um, going to Mars. And Amy, you and I discussed this the other day, um, the fact that Buzz Aldrin's coming out here to Melbourne in just a few weeks and is talking about his plan to get us to Mars by 2035. So, you know, it's it's all very timely. Yeah. Yeah, and it's one of those things that, you know, whatever whatever issues, because it is still science fiction, you know, whatever issues you may have with the, the intricacies and details of the plot or the way it's shown, I mean, it it is getting a discussion going about space flight, which is really exciting and really great. Um, mm. And that's, I mean, I think that's what really matters at this point. Absolutely. Now, we've, we've, we've held off long enough on this. We, we should talk about your book, because I, I promised you that we would have a chat about that. Um, it's, it's a book about uh, pre-NASA spaceflight, right? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of build it as like the prehistory of spaceflight. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So give us, um, give us the lowdown. <laughs> so it's sort of, um, the impetus for it was kind of like, the, the story of NASA is quite familiar. You know, the whole, the sort of classic quote unquote narrative is sort of Kennedy says, we choose to go to the moon. And Neil Armstrong mm-hmm. says, one small step. And then it's just this nice little package with a bow tied off. Um, <laughs> and it kind of, it kind of gives the impression for the, the person who, you know, isn't steeped in this history that um, NASA was kind of created in a vacuum to do this one thing to mm-hmm. beat the Soviet Union in space and that they just invented going to the moon, which is not the case. Um, so what, what my book does is go, um, the time frame is 1930 to 1958, so it actually stops the day NASA opens for business mm-hmm. um, and kind of just shows in a very uh, extremely narrative structure because I'm not trying to make it a textbook by any means because that's super boring to write and read. Um, 
kind of how how rockets were already developing and spacecraft and space planes and astronaut training and understanding of human factors and all the bureaucracy and and all the sort of infrastructure to make a moon program happen all of that existed in different parts in the United States in the 1940s and late 1940s and 50s and it all is rooted in second world war technology which is in itself rooted in 1930s rocket enthusiasts trying not to blow themselves up with various level varying levels of success so it's it's really going through you know you you have this sort of classic idea of NASA but it's what created NASA. Mm. And I suppose the, um, I mean, the all the sort of Von Braun stuff, a lot of the rocket technology and so forth was being designed for, you know, entirely different purposes in some parts of the world, wasn't it? Yeah, and it's, um, and that's the, uh, he's, you can't, you can't do this without talking about Von Braun, mm. um, for better or worse. But, um, there, one thing that that I that I found that will come as a surprise to no one is that every element of this was deeply entrenched in the military. Um, so the rockets were developed. Um, the German army started developing the rockets in the 1930s because that gave them a little bit of a loophole to rebuild their air force without violating the Treaty of Versailles, which severely restricted their air power. Um, and then the the Nazis came to power and sort of that you know they ended up taking over the rockets. Then it was a very interesting story about how Hitler didn't care and then suddenly really cared. Um, and Von Brown really didn't want to be killing people. But I mean, I, I would make the argument that he is very much a victim of circumstance and not necessarily mm -hmm. a horrible human um, who ultimately wanted to go to the United States because he knew that they would probably be the richest and most welcoming to having him develop other rockets based on the V2. Um, and, and the, the Air Force developed its own rockets that were based on V2 technology, and Von Braun himself worked for the Army, so all of the Army's rockets were very much um, variants and sort of building on the V2. And then meanwhile, you've got the Air Force taking the general rocket engine concept and sticking it into an airplane and trying to see if they can punt pilots up higher and higher, faster and faster to figure out what it's going to be like to return from space. And then you've got other Air Force programs um, just doing slow balloon flights to altitude to see about the radiation exposure and the idea of creating a capsule that can keep somebody alive for that long. So you have all these, these bits and pieces and you've got the, the NACA, the uh, National Advisory Committee for Aeronautics, which is uh, NASA's predecessor organization, really, sort of doing all the data gathering and research flights that are sort of feeding into creating these cutting-edge space planes. But this is also the organization that is starting to look at maybe a blunt body, like a rounded capsule that just falls is the easier way to do it. So you have all these pieces relating to military programs all over the place. And then Sputnik goes up and the whole country's like, all right, moon base, let's go. And everyone's freaking out and there's like hundreds of pro proposals to get a man in space and they're all military, they're all run by the Department of Defense and it's Eisenhower who says, I'm not fighting a war in space. Let's do a, let's do a civilian agency. Mm. And that's how he created NASA out of all these military parts. Amy, did, um, did the fact that it was uh, so, so much you know, in the military that this research was going on, did that make your research difficult? Was it was all, were all, was all of this difficult to uncover or, or not? Is it all public record because um, it's so long ago? A lot because it's so old. Um, it's not, not only is it so old, which is really great for me because so much of it is, has been declassified by now. Um, it's such a, it's such a thing that people love. Like everybody loves space, especially Nazi rockets. Um, there are a lot of historians <laughs> who have done, you know, very academic treatises or very sort of in-depth books about Von Braun. So it was, you know, you can kind of figure out where the right documents are 
mm. and what what where the holes are. So it was actually, you know, I did a lot, a fair bit of emailing to archivists in various places and said, no, okay, well, I was you know, reading this book and they they referenced this proposal and I want to find the proposal and I think your archives might have it. And, you know, trip to National Archives and Army Archives and um, eventually it just turned out that a lot of the stuff has thankfully been digitized. Great. So I, I um, you know, downloaded and printed off a stack of PDFs, probably half my height, which isn't <laughs> saying a lot because I'm really short. It's still pretty tall. Um, and it's just all these, you know, these old full reports of like, you know, there's a, a GE report of the Project Hermes, which was the American v, uh, V2 program. And it literally lists every piece of equipment that was brought over from Germany. I mean, no one would ever want to read this for fun, but the fact that it exists and I could actually download it from the internet was pretty great. Mm. And, you know, they're PDF, so they feel really like, ah, I know this isn't some crazy person putting it up on like the you know, yep. anti-CIA website or something. <laughs> <laughs> Amy, uh, now it's called Breaking the Chains of Gravity, is that right? Yes. And it is available internationally, but uh, do you have the release dates yet for Australia? I, I don't have the release date for Australia yet, and I'm not sure. I know that it is. there is an Australian release coming, and if it's not... I'm going to hazard the guess that if it's not next, so it's coming out in the UK. My publisher is in London. The publisher is Bloomsbury Sigma, which is an imprint under Bloomsbury. Um, and they're in London. And the, the UK release is Thursday, this coming Thursday, uh, the 22nd of October. And the US release is January 12th. And that I know goes for Canada as well. And I suspect that could be also the Australian release. Hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm not totally sure because this is a question that I get a lot that I still have not gotten a clear answer to. <laughs> <laughs> I just forgetting to email and ask for like the specifics because there is also and people have asked a lot about um there is an ebook version there is an audiobook version and i'm not sure when those releases are because i feel like a digital thing wouldn't have to wait between markets but i don't know again i'm not i'm not the publisher um can i be cheeky so, yeah. and ask are you reading the audiobook version really quick <laughs> <laughs> Thankfully, I am not narrating the audio book because I don't think anybody needs to listen to my voice for 304 pages. Um, <laughs> I don't know who's doing the audiobook, actually. There was at one point an email that said, we're casting this. And I said, it's not me, is it? And they said, no, no. And I said, have fun. And that's, that's the last I heard of it. So. Oh, you should have oh, sent no. back, you know, Meryl Streep, please. Or so, you know, put some yeah, demands but, in there. You know, yeah, Morgan Freeman's yeah. gravitas <laughs> to get some weight or something. Yeah, I um, I kind of actually forgot. I assumed that I would hear about it, and I just, you know, I was honestly much more concerned with finishing the manuscript and really yeah. Fair know, enough. going over those proof pages to, to worry too much about the narration. But yeah, that is a thing that has happened. It has been narrated. Very good. Well, Amy, look, good luck with the book. And um, when we see the Australian release, we'll uh, give it a yell for you. And thank you so much for chatting today and for becoming part of our team because we do have quite a diverse international team here on Einstein and Gogo at 3RRR. And it's great to have um, someone other than me actually being a space enthusiast, which helps me a lot because it means yeah. I'll, I'll do less work and you can do more. That sounds like a good plan. So uh, thanks so much for chatting with us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and I'll speak to you guys soon. Sounds good. We'll probably talk to you in about, uh, well, we'll, we'll catch up before the end of the year. So um, that yeah. would be cool. All right. Perfect. Bye-bye. All right. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you. Bye. That was Amy Shearer title. So if you want to see some of uh, Amy's stuff, actually, just um, Google uh, YouTube 
Pluto in a minute and you'll see some of these great videos. They're really cool. They're content rich and they're short. So you won't need a long attention span and you won't have to multitask. You can watch them for a minute and then do something else. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Uh, you are listening to 3RRR. It's Einstein at GoGo. Uh, we have a guest in the studio now. Dr. Thomas Sheffy is a postdoctoral fellow in biochemistry at the La Trobe Institute for Molecular Science at La Trobe University. Welcome to the studio, Thomas. Hi, thanks. It's good to be here. Now, you work in a couple of interesting areas, and I want to start off by um, talking about your actual research work, mm. and then we'll get into your sort of side project around Wikipedia, which I think is pretty <laughs> interesting. Um, now, you, you do a lot of work in regards to um, you know proteins and how they work and so forth, but I think it's, it's very interesting to me that you sort of look at evolutionary biology, uh, his, history in this sense, and how proteins work and try and get clues towards what's going on as a result of that evolutionary history. Talk us through how that works. Yeah, so, I mean, with protein engineering, the um, the original hope, I think, was that people would be able to engineer proteins like they could just engineer a car. You know, you mm. understand how it works and you design make something it. and just yep. make it. Um, and it turns out to be a lot more complicated than that because we don't understand 100% how proteins and enzymes function. So... The alternative is that you do it the way that evolution has done it. And so you look at the random changes that have occurred and there's been some sort of selection pressure and you can either um, just look at uh, existing proteins. So these are you know, the endpoints of natural evolution and you can use those to inform your engineering or you can perform the evolution yourself and you take, mm. a, you take the gene for a protein or the gene for an enzyme and you put selection pressures on it in a laboratory environment in controlled conditions and you evolve it towards some new function that you are looking for. So how long does that take though? Because I can imagine the success of that pressure scenario mm. in in nature is not necessarily 100%. I mean, there would be proteins that are under pressures all the time that mm -hmm. just do not evolve, yep. presumably. So do you see that when you're trying to do this artificially? Yeah, so I mean, um, you don't always have a 100% success rate. There's always a, an element of chance in there. I mean, the, one of the big differences between doing it in the lab and doing it in nature is it's a much more accelerated process. You know, you don't want to wait a million years for your experiment to be done. So you tend to have very fast generation times. You'll look at very large populations and you'll have far stronger selection pressures in the laboratory than you would ever see in nature, right. really strong selection right. pressures. Mm. Um, you hear a lot about genome engineering. Mm. Uh, how, If I want to turn on or turn off a particular gene, can I design a protein that will actually stick to a particular sequence and turn on or turn off that gene? Yeah, I mean, conceivably, I can think of ways in which you could do that. I think um, uh, a lot of the ways in which people are doing that are through things like CRISPR technology, where you're actually editing the genome itself. But if you wanted to leave the genome the same, mm -hmm. there would be ways in which you could manipulate naturally occurring proteins and um, re-engineer them towards being able to uh, bind to a gene in a controlled mm -hmm. circumstance. Uh, yeah, that's fascinating fascinating implications where where it's not the DNA it's at fault, it's the it's the epigenetics at fault, mm -hmm. like Prader-Willi syndrome. It's a syndrome in which these kids don't express these particular very important proteins mm. uh, uh, to, to do with intellectual ability and, and appetite. And I know a group of people that are looking for a way to try to activate those genes. Everything's there, but they, they were talking about or wondering about particular applications like this where you could turn on genes. It's a new form of gene therapy that in, doesn't involve sequence changes. So mm. it looks like your, your work could, uh, 
could help guide those kind of analysis. So one of the useful things about protein engineering is that you know a lot of these um, proteins and enzymes have evolved under natural circumstances to do you know very useful things uh, naturally, but they're not necessarily the way that we want to use them as tools. And so that's why you can engineer the proteins ah, okay. to be able to have a, a more precise role that we're looking for. In terms of generating that selective pressure mm. in a test tube, I mean, I can sort of imagine, you know, if you've got, uh, you know, bacteria that might be feeding off a particular sugar and if you mm -hmm. give them an alternative energy source, then they have that, you know, selective pressure to be able to utilise that alternative energy source. Um, but when you're talking about a single protein and mm -hmm. creating selective pressure just on that single protein, you know, removed from... The, um, the genome that it contains it. How, how do you do that? So um, there's lots of different ways in which you can do it. The way that I um, have done it is that you keep the genome of, let's say, the bacterium completely the same. You'll introduce random mutations into the one gene that you're looking to, to allow to change. You'll perform um, the selective pressure. I can talk about that more later if you like. But um, you then once you've screened for all of the variants that have satisfied whatever selection you've put on them, you just take out that gene. You discard the whole rest of the genome and you put it back in a fresh genome. So anything that accumulated in the genome has now been refreshed. You put it back in the original one and only mutations in that gene are kept. Mm. It's fascinating. It, it seems as though um, you know once you've got this functionality, you can do a lot. So the question then is, mm. what do you intend to do with this sort of skill set once you've once you've got it? I mean, what's the what's the um, outcome in terms of where you will apply it? Uh, the majority of my work so far has been in um, uh, therapeutic or, or agricultural situations. So the the therapeutic idea is that. Um, uh, if you've got a pro uh, an enzyme, a protease, it'll cut other proteins. And if you could target it towards being able to cut a specific target pathogenic protein in the bloodstream, let's say you've got some protein that's overexpressed in a particular cancer, if you could put this enzyme in someone's bloodstream, it'll cut only that target and it'll be therapeutic for that cancer. So mm. that's the sort of application that, that I've been looking at. It's mm. very cool. Now, when you're not playing around with proteins, mm. you're also involved with Wikipedia, which is, um, in fact, I, I know in the information that uh, was sent through to us about you, Thomas, you were referred to as a Wikipedian. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a, it's a term I haven't heard before. Um, and it's, you essentially go in, you look at Wikipedia, which we all trust, Implicitly, I think. Is that Where all research begins. Where, it all Where all research <laughs> begins. But I, I've heard that that, um, that it's more accurate than you would think. Yeah, so you, you go in there and you, you look at this. You look at the accuracy and you, you help um, change pages. Is that right? Yeah, I do. So um, it's in some ways, it's nothing really all that special. Literally anyone can change Wikipedia at any time. I, you know, you can have a, a registered account, but even if you don't have an account, you can edit anonymously and it just edits it under your IP address rather than your username. Hmm. Um, so yes, that's what I've, uh, what I've been doing. And, and in terms of that, I mean, I think I've edited one or two Wikipedia pages in my life. I mean, what sort of, um, what sort of numbers are you talking about here? How many pages can you actually modify? Um, so, uh, so far I've, I've made a few thousand edits over wow. a few hundred pages. Um, I guess I do uh, a couple of hundred per month. Um, some people do a very small number. Some people do a, a very large number. It also depends on what kind of edits you're doing. If you're just doing spell checking, you can easily rack right. up thousands yep. and thousands and thousands of edits. Yeah, but does this involve? I mean, you know, these these things are often put together by 
a, a range of people, mm, experts. Yeah, yeah. Does it involve sort of bringing them into the conversation or do you just go and sort of override them? Or how, how do you go about sort of, you know, I look up something like hurricanes and there is a massive amount of information there, half of it written by meteorologists and half of it probably written by crackpots. But, um, you know, how do you, how do you then pull that back together and say, well, hang on, you know, some of this isn't quite right. Um, this is what we need to do. It usually depends on how big a change it is. If it's just a small change, you can just go in and do it yourself. If it's something that uh, might be quite a big overhaul of a page, so for example, the, the article for Enzyme and the article for Gene have both been completely rewritten in the last couple of years, okay. and I was part of, part of the group of people who did that, and that involves a lot more discussion behind the scenes. So every Wikipedia page also has what's called a talk page behind it. So if you look up at the top of a Wikipedia page, it'll say talk. You can click on that, and there'll be a big discussion on ideas and changes that can be made. So when it says reference needed mm. uh, um, and, you, and you kind of, well, or, or there's a reference and you click on it, it says reference needed. So you can just, if I know that what that reference is, I can just go and fill that in. Yeah, just go and change it. If you're, if you're wrong, other people will correct you. Usually there'll be a, a dozen or more people watching the changes that happen to any given page at mm. any given time. And if you've done something wrong, um, then usually it'll be reverted very quickly or someone will mention on the talk page, I'm not sure about this uh, mm. reference, but someone else will check it. Mm. How close is Wikipedia now to being, you know, really reliable? I mean, one of the things I always find fascinating is when you look at um, high school textbooks and you realise <laughs> that, you know, these things have to be updated and it's, it's great for the publishing companies, they can resell them every year. But it's, but it's unusual actually for an item in a high school textbook to be changed because it's fairly core science, you might say. And so unless something like uh, Pluto is discovered to have more than one moon, you know, these things don't change very often. And you've got that sort of, uh, that solidity to it and, and believability. But even so, I mean, you know, when we worked out that we had plate tectonics, a lot of the textbooks would have been binned and we started again. Brain plasticity, yeah, things I mean, like this. Yeah, I mean, where is Wikipedia at that point now? I mean, in terms of its totality, are we, are we able to really trust this as a, as a knowledge source? It used to be much worse than it is. So sort of around uh, 2005, 2006, there were sort of big problems with um, uh, it being you know, pretty inaccurate. But sort of in mm. the last 10 years, there's been a big push towards, instead of focusing on new page creation, it's yep. improvement of the existing pages. Oh, right. <laughs> and certainly some core pages are pretty stable. So often they'll be um, called a featured article. You'll you'll notice that, and that's been a a big community review process to get it to that state. And you know, those end up being pretty stable with relatively minor changes. But for more niche or obscure topics, particularly ones that are moving fast or ones that may not have um, had as much effort put into them yet, they move reasonably quickly still. Yeah. Are you working on any? at the moment, like anything in particular that's interesting? Uh, at the moment, I'm um, looking to try and redo the protein structure page, particularly um, images. So my kind of interest has been making new images for Wikipedia because yeah. that's often a, a kind of a weakness of a lot of the pages. Yeah. If you find anywhere that there's the words protein codes for, can you rip that out and put something in that makes sense. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> in fact, there, there are editors who will just have one specific phrase that they absolutely hate yeah. and their entire editing uh, life, life is finding oh, just really? that one phrase. So I can, I can rid the world of my self-abuse. Excellent, right? Mm -hmm. I'm on to it. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, Dr. Thomas Chevy, th thanks so much for coming in and chatting to us. It's really interesting work and um, continue the good work in, in proteins and, and also your Wikipedia stuff is important for all of us, I think. Thanks so much. Oh, cheers. Dr. Thomas Chevy is... Uh, postdoctoral fellow in biochemistry at the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science at Latrobe University. And we've actually um, 
had quite a few guests of late from the Latrobe Institute for Molecular Science, thanks to Dr. Giselle Roberts out there who's been sending them to us, and we've got a couple more coming up in a week or so. Um, we're almost out of time, I'm afraid, folks. Dr. Cromo, thanks so much for coming in. Pleasure, as always. And Dr. Downey, good to see you. As always, again, You're in yes. again next week, I think. I am, yes, yes, yes. Looking forward to it. Very cool. And Dr. Catherine? I'll meet you, you in the staff room after this to get my back sorted out. Absolutely, yes. Well, I'm actually thinking about all those people still running the marathon that Dr. Oh, Dionne yes. mentioned Must earlier. Must big so. up to all those that are, that are, that are running it and, still, uh, and, and some of them are still running it. Yeah, so well you're done. all amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, if you if you finish it, I think that's a massive effort, even if you crawl across the line yep, in my exactly, book. Yeah. So. Well, uh, you've been listening to an hour of science on Three Triple R, Science Don't Go Go. I'm Dr. Shane. It's been a pleasure chatting to you for the last two hours, not one. Um, we are sure that radiotherapy will be back in its normal format next week. Um, but until then, remember that science is everywhere and have a fantastic Sunday. We will chat to you again soon. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.